0: Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at myhomechurch.org. Consider it pure joy. <laughs> when trials of various kinds touch your life, you have to consider it, which means make a choice. It's a choice. Sometimes it doesn't come natural, but as we think about His goodness, we think about the hope and what He's done for us, joy begins to fill our hearts. So yeah, Lord, I pray as we open your word that joy, joy would touch hearts in an even deeper way in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. All right. All right. It's good to see each and every one of you guys. It's good to be here this morning. Beautiful presence right now. Beautiful presence. I just love it. I wish we could gather every day like this. We kind of do. We kind of do in the prayer room, guys. So again, I just encourage you to come out. Um, we're going to continue teaching. Uh, we're going to continue teaching on the names of God. And, uh, and last, last week, we transitioned to really uh, begin to highlight the second person of the Trinity God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We really began to focus on the Son, Jesus. And the intention last week was actually to address what I believe is the most common expression uh, in terms of how we identify the Son, the most common way we identify Him. It's, it's in the scriptures, but also just in our language when we gather together, and that's Jesus Christ. There's probably no, uh, there's, there's no way, uh, more popular way than, than that expression, Jesus Christ, that we identify the Son. And, and I, 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 wanna, I want us to have faith for what that means when we say Jesus Christ. I went there to be a weightiness, a substance to that, because it can so easily fall off our lips, come off our lips, and sometimes you don't really understand what exactly it is that we are saying. Um, I, I, I said jokingly last week that Jesus Christ, we say it so often together like that, that I was convinced early on I thought it was his first and last name. <laughs> I thought he was, honestly, I thought he was Mr. Christ. <laughs> I thought it was first name Jesus, last name Christ. But that is not the case. Those are two separate names or titles. His personal name is Jesus, and the supreme title that the Son of God has been given is that he is the Christ. He is Jesus the Christ. Christ. And last week I had the intention of unpacking these together, uh, but the Lord moved differently in a really amazing way. So we highlighted Jesus as we looked at uh, what that really means—that Yahweh saves—and then we had two people come and give their hearts to the Lord last week. So uh, we step out of the way. <laughs> we step out of the way for what the Lord's doing. So today we're going to highlight uh, the other title, which is the Christ, and I'm I'm so excited. It's, So when we go around and we say, Jesus the Christ, like it'll, I feel it'll never be the same again. Now we know Yahweh saves, and we're going to look at what the Christ means today. So let's open up our Bibles and jump into this. John chapter 20 is where we're going to start. John chapter 20, specifically verse 30. And I really encourage you. Man, it took everything in me. So we weren't, for hours upon hours, I pulled back some things I wanted to share, but... Uh, we're going to go through a number of scriptures, so I really encourage you to get your Bibles out or phone, whatever you're using. Look upon someone next to you if you don't have it so that you can see this for yourself. Jesus the Christ. Everyone with me? John chapter 20. Okay, we're going to look at verses 30 and 31. This is going to kind of launch us in this, in this study today. And this is what it says. This is the gospel of John. Uh, John the Beloved, who also wrote uh, the book of Revelation, And he's coming to the end of this gospel. There's actually only 21 chapters. So we're at the very end of this gospel. And John is about to give us the whole purpose for what he's been after for these last 30 chapters. He's gonna summarize it right here. And, And this is what he says Look at verse 30. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So there are many signs that Jesus performed signs, miracles, wonders. Do you actually know that if you were to go to the very next chapter, which is the last chapter of the book, chapter 21, and you were to go into uh, the very last verse, which is is verse 25, it actually says, kind of paraphrasing, it says there's not enough books to contain all of the miracles and wonders and signs and good works that Jesus did. Now, he's probably exaggerating to a bit, but he's trying to make a point. There were many, many, many miracles, signs, wonders that Jesus did. But John says this, but John says, look what he says. But these are written. These are written. What are these? He wrote seven signs specifically in the Gospel of John. And he says, there were so many I could have chosen, but I chose seven for this purpose. What was it? But these are written that you may believe, meaning faith would hit your heart. So, you do, so you, do you know that signs, Jesus' demonstrations of his power, actually create faith? <laughs> when you see him working, that's why we believe that the gifts are for today. Because they they actually stir faith when you see Jesus as healer and deliverer in those ways. And so it says, but these are written so that you may believe faith would hit your heart for what? That Jesus is the Christ. (laughs) John says, this is what I want you to know. All that I've been writing is unto this one thing right here. I chose these seven signs so that you would know without a shadow of a doubt in your heart, you would have faith in your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And listen, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. (laughs) That by believing that Jesus is the Christ, son of God, you may have life. Not just natural life, that's zoe, that's divine life that comes from God. So as we come to encounter Jesus as the Christ, it's said that we will find life in that name. If you were to go back to the beginning of the gospel in Luke, Luke chapter 2, The angel comes to the shepherds in Luke 2, uh, chapter, chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. And when the angels come, it's where they say, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all of the people. And then it says, for unto you this day, verse 11, unto you this day, meaning there was a specific moment in history where something significant happened. He says, in the city of David, a savior was born, who is the Christ, the Lord, who is Christ, the Lord. This child Jesus is the Christ. And John says all that I've labored over in writing this gospel is that we would come to an understanding of it. Guys, we I want our hearts to be just moved with the wonder that Jesus is the Christ. I'm going to break this open more in a minute. Christ means anointed one. We'll look at that. The one smeared with oil. And what Christ is in the Greek and the New Testament is what Messiah is in the Old Testament. So when it says that Jesus is the Christ, it is saying Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. And if we, I'm going to show you some scriptures. All of these New Testament writers, what it comes down to it, is that they were looking, longing, and pointing to this one thing. That Jesus is the one that our hearts have been looking for generation after generation. Do you, do you know that Jesus, Jesus in Matthew 16... He asks his disciples two questions, and sometimes we've hit the scripture for different reasons, but he asks them two questions in Matthew 16. And the first one he asks is he says, who do people say that I am? And I feel Jesus is asking these questions right now. I feel he's always asked them, but especially now, because there are so many confusing opinions and thoughts over who Jesus is. There's so many things on social media over who Jesus is. And Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And what's interesting is that the disciples, they respond rather quickly, which tells me they were well aware of, of the images that the crowds were, were, were defining Jesus as. They knew how Jesus was being sculpted by the crowds. They knew the buzzwords. They said, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're another prophet. And then Jesus turns to them and says, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? So important. Even if it's a right revelation of what other people are saying, Jesus says, I want to know the who am I to you. Who am I to you? It's so dangerous to build a revelation of who Jesus is based off someone else's knowledge. Look, thank, thank God for our pastors. Thank God for leaders. Thank God for godly parents who have raised us up in the ways of the Lord. That is so important. But at some point, it has to transition where our own hearts say, I know who you are for myself now. I know who you are for myself. And so Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, but who do you say that I am? Meaning, I, I want more than public perspective. I want more than a general consensus. I want to know what's in your heart. And Peter replies in verse 16 with what has been known through church history as the great confession. Not, just a, conf- not a confession of guilt, not, not nothing, nothing like that. It's known, it's been memorialized in the church history as the great confession of faith. And this is what Peter says. In Matthew 16 he says you are the Christ the son of the living God. He says you are the Christ the son of the living God and Jesus says blessed are you Simon Bar Jonah Simon son of Jonah that's what it means blessed are you you know what Jesus just did? He's just he just added a beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek, right? Blessed are the merciful. Jesus just just said, you want to know it also leads to a blessed life? If you know that I'm the Christ. If you know that I'm the Christ, you will be blessed. He says, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. He says, but my Father in heaven. Do you know that that means that we can have man-made revelations of Jesus? But we need a revelation from heaven over who Jesus is. And then, and then Jesus says, "Jesus says, right here." He said he calls him Peter, which means Petros, rock. He says, "On this rock, I will build my church." Meaning, Jesus says, "I build my church where there is a right confession of who I am. I build my church where there is a right revelation of who I am. I do not build necessarily where there is the most resources. I do not always build where there is the most gifting and talent." There's nothing inherently wrong with those things. He says, but here's where I build, where people understand who I am. You say, I want the Lord to use my life. He'll do more through surrendering and acknowledging who who he is than you trying to do something in your own strength. (laughs) The more we actually come and have the eyes of our heart opened up to he is the Christ, the Lord says, I will do more right there. He actually goes on to say, in this church, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, (laughs) which I love. We've, We've talked about this, but gates... It kind of sounds like it's a, the church takes a defensive position. And as hell comes against it, the church will be able to withstand it. Now that's great and that's true, but it's much better than that. <laughs> because gates are defensive. So when it says the gates of hell will not prevail, Jesus is saying this church is going to be so aggressive. It's going to be so on forward, like forward movement. He says that when you come into places where there's strongholds and the gates of hell are set up, they will not be able to stop it. But listen, that's not through hype, that's not through gifting, and that's not through talent. It's knowing that he is Messiah. It's knowing that he is the anointed one. And it's knowing, as we're going to see at the end, that Galatians says that Paul says, it's no longer I that live, but Christ in me. The anointing of Christ lives inside every believer. So that the life that I live, I don't live by the flesh, but by faith in the one who lives in me. So this is where he builds his church, is where we know that he's the Christ. So this is, listen, it's not just a side issue. Jesus is very serious about us knowing him as the Messiah, as the Christ. So listen, before I explain in, in greater detail like what that means, anointed one and how, because that's, uh, that's going to be beautiful, I just want us to see how there, there is such, there was such an anticipation and expectation for the Christ to come. Because sometimes I feel like we we don't fully grasp that. I know I don't at times. What it really means that he's Messiah. And I just want us to see that the scriptures point to how everyone was looking for this one to come. We can't fully understand the Bible, the New Testament, and especially the Old Testament without understanding what's called the messianic hope. The messianic hope. And this hope is not just for the Jews. It's not just for what we would call Christianity today. It's not just for this little religious sect. The messianic hope is the hope of all of humanity. It is the hope of all of mankind. It is the hope of the cosmos, the heavens and the earth. Whether or not a person walking down the street knows it or not, their hope is in that there is going to be one who will come to restore all things. There are many themes that you could take through the scriptures if you run from Genesis to Revelation. Beautiful themes. But at the end of the day, they all come under one major arc, which is the story of redemption. That God is going to repurchase and repossess his people and this earth by paying a price for it. That's what it means to redeem. We know it's through the blood of Jesus, and everything's going to be restored and renewed. But the story of redemption hinges on one central figure. That's the Redeemer or the Messiah, the Christ. So everything and everyone is looking to this right here. And we have to understand that like, this aching, this longing for the Messiah to come, you have to understand for, for, for the Jewish people, which by the way, Christianity is simply an extension of Judaism. I feel a lot of times we don't understand like, the glory of what we've been brought into because we actually don't understand our Jewish roots. We don't understand that at one point, we as Gentiles, who are probably the vast majority outside of a few that I know of in this room, were outsiders to the things of God. Cut off, it says, from the hope of God, but we've been now brought into it. And for generation after generation, the people of God, the Jewish people, were looking for the Messiah. And it was an aching and a longing. It was a deep pining of the soul for this one who would come and redeem everything. Listen, by the time we get into what we're reading right now, you have to understand that there was was promises given that go back to Eve, back in the garden, that have yet come to pass. They they were thinking, these these promises have been prolonged, has God forgotten us? There's periods of exile where the people of God were literally put into exile and they lived in captivity and lived in the bondage to other people. And they wondered if all hope was forsaken. Even between the Old and New Testament, there's a 400-year period of silence. See, we read from Malachi to Matthew, there's a blank page there. That page speaks volumes. 400 years where there was no voice coming forth. The people of God were wondering, have we lost hope? Will it ever happen? So when Jesus steps on the scene and they say, this is the Messiah, the Christ, this is so significant because this is the one that every heart was looking for. Generation after generation longing for the one who would not only come for Israel, but who would ultimately come and impact the world by establishing God's kingdom on this earth. So look, in John chapter 1, when, when, when Andrew, the disciple Andrew, finds Jesus, he goes to his brother Simon Peter. And in John 1.41, he says this. He says, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ, it says. If I said I found my keys, what does that imply? That I've been looking for them. When it says that we have found the Messiah, what he's saying is, Andrew, Simon, do you understand who we found? We found the one that we've been looking for. We found the one that we've been looking for generation after generation after generation. He has come. Listen, this is, see, as Gentiles, right, for me, as a non-Jew who's been brought in, most of our testimonies probably sound something like this. We were living a certain way, whether it was good or bad, according to worldly standards, successful or not, but we found out that we were missing something. And one day, someone came and found us. Jesus came and found us. The man of grace came and found us. And after that, all of our lives changed. But my point is this, is that we, sometimes we don't understand that who found us is the one who the Jews had been looking for and searching for for centuries. So when we say we found him, they're saying, wait a minute. You said the Christ found you? Do you understand who that is? That is the seed that was promised to come through Eve and crush the head of the serpent. And through the crushing of the head of the serpent would redeem mankind. That is the offspring that was promised to Abraham that would be a blessing to not only his family, to the nations. The one who found you is the one who was prophesied to sit on the throne of David as the son of David. The one who found you is the prophet who would come from within God's people and be greater than Moses. The one who found you is the one who would come in the order of Melchizedek as the true priest. When we say that we found him, it's the one that Andrew said we have found him. It's the one that we've been looking for. All throughout Scripture, you find that there is this ache for the Messiah to come. Do you you remember, uh, we went through in the Word of God message, but do you remember the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, where there's two disciples who are leaving Jerusalem to go to Emmaus. It's a seven-mile journey. And they're deeply discouraged because Jesus was just crucified in in Jerusalem. And they're they're not sure what to make of it now. They thought he was Messiah, and now they're not sure. And so they're heading to Emmaus on a seven-mile journey. And Jesus actually shows up on the road and meets them. It's too much to get into as to why they don't recognize. But Jesus shows up, and they begin to explain what had happened. And Jesus does this. It says, starting in the book of Moses and then working through all the prophets, he began to show them how the Christ must suffer before entering glory and how all scriptures testify to himself. So what's he saying? Every scripture, every book is after this one thing, testifying to who the Christ would be, testifying to who the Messiah would be, when he would come and suffer, and as a result, glory would follow after that. And beloved, we have found him. (laughs) We have found the Messiah, Jesus, the Redeemer, The one who all the redemption hinges on has come. I want you to real quick turn with me to First Peter. I want to share one other scripture on this, and then we'll we'll look at what it means. First Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter one, and then we'll break this open in terms of what the anointing means, what it means that he is the Christ. But if, if Jesus found you, I, man, I pray even this scripture would just overwhelm your heart when you consider who it is that has found you, the Messiah. So look at verse, verse 10, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. This is what he says. He says this, he says, concerning, this is Peter, verse 10, concerning this salvation. Now, what salvation? We don't have time to go through it all, but verses 2 through 9. Peter unpacks the glorious salvation and grace that has come to us. He says it's a living hope. It's a a salvation that can't be touched or corrupted. He says even through the deepest of trials, joy will be yours because of this salvation and and this grace that's been given. So Peter goes on to say this. Concerning this salvation, what I just said, verses 2 through 9. Listen. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Verse 11, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So here's what Peter said. He said, listen, guys, the prophets long ago prophesied, longed, looked for when the Christ would come and ultimately suffer, and with that his glories would follow after that. It doesn't just say they casually looked. It says they dedicated their whole lives to carefully, thoroughly, very intentionally looking through the scriptures saying, when will the Christ come? When will the Messiah come? When will he come and suffer and with that his subsequent glories? You say, what glories? Go read the book of Acts. (laughs) Since he came and suffered and then rose to the seat at the right hand of the Father, the Holy Spirit was poured out. We now live in the messianic age where the blind can see, the deaf can hear, the lame could walk. Salvation is open to all of humanity. The glories have been opened up because he's come. Peter's trying to awaken like an awe in our hearts saying, guys, what what people looked for and longed for, you're able to experience it now. Because look what he says in verse 12. It was revealed to them, meaning the prophets, that they were serving not themselves but you. (laughs) He's talking to, now this is 2,000 years ago, but he's talking to the New Covenant believers. And he's saying, even though these prophets understood that they would never see the Messiah, all Christ, in their age, in their life, they said they still dedicated their lives to it. It was that fascinating to them, that important to them. And they said, but they realized the Lord revealed to them it would never be for them, it would be for you. It would be for us today that the Christ has come all of us, what he's saying is all of the Old Testament hopes and promises, we are heirs to them because of the Messiah, because of the Christ. He's saying these guys were just like in awe of this. And he's trying to say, you guys now. It's, it's available for you. So look what he says. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, In things that have now been announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So Peter says what the prophets prophesied long ago, it's what spirit-anointed preachers are declaring to you today called the good news. When you hear the good news, the gospel, you're hearing the message of the Christ who has come for you. The Redeemer of all. And then he says this at the end, which I love. He says, these are things, when the Christ comes, the Messiah, these are things to which even angels long to look. So here's Peter's point. He says, long ago, prophets had prophesied searching the scriptures. Every prophet speaks to when will the Christ come. Luke 24, Jesus revealed, every scripture testifies to this. And what Peter is saying is, guys, the time of searching and seeking is over. He has come. The Messiah has come. And Peter is trying to, awaken this intense interest to say, if prophets long ago gave their lives to this knowing they'd never see it, and angels who have never sinned long to look upon this, how much more should you, who are the inheritance, the one who bear the good news of this, you're the receivers of the grace of the Messiah coming, how much more should we be stunned by this? The angels long to look upon what is happening through the Christ. Angels, listen, he's talking about holy angels. Think about this. They have never sinned, and they are in no need of redemption. So in many ways, they have no need of the Christ like we have need of the Christ. And yet even they long to stoop down and gaze upon what's happening on the earth because they are absolutely stunned with fascination of what's happening. They, they want to peer into what the Christ is doing. And Peter's saying, guys, be awake and be filled with hope and joy and be overwhelmed at the fact that that, what they long for, it's the good news that you're receiving right now. It's the good news that the Christ has come. So there's many scriptures that speak to that. Uh, Paul, when Paul got converted in Acts 9, he goes into the temple. And it says the, the Jews got frustrated because he grew in wisdom and favor with God, proving that Jesus was the Christ. The first message that Paul really begins to preach is that Jesus is the Christ. Everything speaks to that. So now that we understand the significance, right, the significance, everything points to this, what does it really mean? What does it mean? Well, Christ means anointed one, as I said, smeared with oil. And what Christ is in the New Testament is what, in the Old Testament, is what Messiah means. Anointed one, one smeared with oil, one set apart for the work of God. One set apart for the work of God. Now, this is how it worked. And I want you guys, I'm going to teach this for a moment. I think our hearts are going to be filled with hope and just like, again, overwhelmed by what Jesus has done for us. In the Old Testament, the way anointing worked, the way someone would be anointed, is they would take oil, typically olive oil, and they would put it upon an individual's head. And it was a sign that they were being set apart and they were being anointed for a specific work. And so here's the key though, is that in the Old Testament, although people were anointed, there was much restriction with how the anointing worked, it was only for certain people, for certain tasks. That would last for a certain period of time. This is important because when Jesus comes, everything changes. (laughs) Now, this is really beautiful. And I almost wanted to give three separate teachings on this because it's so rich. But we're just going to, I'm going to give you just like the the overview. The certain people that were anointed in the Old Testament is so significant to us understanding who Jesus is as the anointed one to us. The three people that would be anointed were prophet, priest, and king. And king prophet, priest, and king. Now this is important. For the most part, outside of a few exceptions that were actually pictures of the New Testament, only prophets could function in the realm of of the prophetic. Only kings could function as kings. Only priests could function as, as priests. So each of these were anointed for specific tasks. And when you understand how the anointing worked with each of those offices, we begin to better understand the purpose of the anointing. So for example, just stay with me. The prophets, what is a prophet? The prophet is is God's messenger to speak God's message. In essence, it's God's mouthpiece. The prophet speaks the word of God, okay? So the prophetic anointing was specifically for power and authority. To what? To be able to speak God's word, to speak the word of the Lord so that when God's word was released, hearts would be touched by it and ultimately returned to the Lord. The prophet would give vision for this is where God wants us. This is the way of the Lord. The prophet would lay before them. This this is how it is to be done. So, for example, Moses was a prophet. Not only did they speak with power and authority, but prophets had an anointing. The prophetic anointing was so that they could also demonstrate with power the very words that they were speaking. So that there would be... An authentication of their message. Their message was being verified by the signs and wonders. So Moses doesn't just proclaim God's word. He then goes and actually demonstrates it as well with signs and wonders. Elijah passed his prophetic anointing to Elisha. He did that by giving the, the, the mantle. The prophetic uh, anointing was given to him. And the idea was that if that was passed down, we should expect to see the same ministry in Elisha that we see in Elijah. What's amazing is that if you take those two prophets and stack them next to each other, their ministries are almost identical. They both part the Jordan. They both multiply food. They both raise the dead. Why? Because that's the prophetic anointing, power and authority. Do you know anyone else that calms storms, (laughs) multiplied food, and raised the dead? (laughs) Oh, wait till you see. Jesus comes and connects all of these. So that's the prophetic anointing is is to be able to release God's word. The second is the priest. The priest was meant to be a mediator between God and man. And so the priestly anointing was in order to set one apart, which is called consecration, holiness, sanctification. Why? Because the priest was meant to stand in the gap and represent the people before God and then God before the people. And so if you were going to be a mediator like that, you had to be set apart in holiness and sanctification. And the idea was that God desired fellowship with his people. But he could not ultimately have fellowship because of sin. So God established the priesthood line. And he established this priesthood line who would act as, who would stand in the gap between sinful man and God. And they would offer up sacrifices in order that God could have fellowship with his people. But the reality is is that that fellowship was greatly restricted because the blood of goats and animals could never fully reconcile man and God. But the priesthood anointing was to be set apart in order to be a mediator. And then the last anointing was the kingly anointing which was to rule, reign, dominion, authority. The king would be anointed to be a shepherd of his people where he would lead with wisdom, justice, mercy and compassion. So prophet, priest, king. Now here's the deal. All of these people in the Old Testament, they were truly anointed people who were really set apart and really had, had a, the power of God was upon their lives. But here's the truth is that all of them, take any prophet, any priest, any king, all of them could never fully, fully do what they were called to do in that function. None of them could ever truly fulfill what God desired for them to do in the calling that was upon their lives. In other words, no priest could fully reconcile God and man. No priest could fully restore a relationship between God and man. There was always restriction. No prophet could truly speak the word of God and demonstrate in such a way that hearts would fully return to the Lord and give their hearts unto him forever and ever. No king could fully shepherd the people in order to lead them in wisdom and righteousness and justice. In fact, many kings often had their own hearts corrupted by the power that they were given. And so although there was anointed prophets, priests, and kings, the people of God began to long not just for any anointed person, but the anointed one. The anointed one, who the three offices of prophet, priest, and king would converge on. And this one would be able to do what no priest, king, or prophet could do in the Old Testament. And that anointed one would be the Messiah. He would be the Christ. And beloved, that one is Jesus when it says Christ. He is the true king. He is the true prophet. He is the true priest. So when we say Jesus Christ, this is what we are saying. How is he the true prophet? He is the word of God. He does not just speak a word from God. He is the word of God. Hebrews 1 says that long ago in many ways in many places, God spoke through prophets to the fathers. But in this last day, the father has spoken through the son. Jesus is the final word. He's the absolute word. His word is true. There's so many scriptures that speak to this. But in Luke 7, when Jesus uh, went into a village called Nain, and he healed, actually, he resurrected a, a dead son, a widow's son. It says, all the people came around in Luke seven sixteen and said this, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. That's a fulfillment of what was said would take place from the people of God, that there would be one who would rise among them. Jesus is that great prophet. His voice is life itself. <laughs> He's not only the true prophet, Jesus is the true priest, <laughs> He is the one, he is the only mediator, it says, between God and man. How? Through his flesh. What Old Testament priests could never do, Jesus did once and for all in shedding his blood on the cross. His work is so sufficient that he never has to do another sacrifice again. That's why we do not sacrifice animals again. And that through the shedding of his blood, man and God can be so restored that God can actually take up residence in us and make us the temple of God. That is such an overwhelming, beautiful reality. That means right now, if Christ is in you and your heart feels condemned to come before the Lord, you have the anointing of the great high priest living in you. You can draw near before him. It's so beautiful. That means there's no more shame. That means the true Lamb of God has come to take away the sins of the world. That his blood was shed so that we would no longer have a guilty conscience. But that in confidence we could come before God Almighty and say, I belong here as a son and as a daughter. That's what he's done as the high priest. So he's the true priest. And he's the true king. He is the true king. The scriptures say that when the king comes, the anointed king, he will come in the line of David. So many places we can go to. But the book of Matthew opens up in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David. Right from the beginning, Matthew says, I want you to know something. This king, he comes in the line of David because he is the chosen king. One of my favorite things, and then, and then I want to share one other thing with Jesus. One of my favorite things when it comes to the king is in the ancient Near East when the, when the Old Testament was written, one of the dominant metaphors for a king was shepherd. It was shepherd. And so a king had many responsibilities. We always think of power and might. But a king was meant to be a shepherd to his people. Meaning he was meant to have wisdom, kindness, compassion, mercy. He was meant to be a champion for the oppressed. He was meant to have compassion on the lost. Guys, Ezekiel, this is, you got to write this down. Ezekiel 34. Just just write it down and come back to. But in verses 1 and 2, it might even go to verses 4 or 5. God comes to, through the prophet Ezekiel, and it says he rebukes, he rebukes the shepherds of Israel, meaning the leaders or kings of Israel. And do you know why? He says, you take the fatted part of the calf for yourself, but you leave nothing for your flock. He goes on to say, he says, he says you take care of yourself, but not your sheep. You, you do not heal the sick as the shepherd. You do not bind up those who are wounded. If anyone like alarms start going off when you think about Jesus... <laughs> uh, He says, you do not go after, after those who have strayed. You do not have concern for the lost as the shepherd of Israel. He says, and as a result, my people have scattered because they have no shepherd. But then God prophesied this later on in verse 23 of Ezekiel 34. He says this. God says, but I will set up over them one shepherd. He says, oh, every king has failed you, but there is a time coming where I will give you one shepherd. And this is what he says, my servant David... David was already dead. He's saying, this one will be the son of David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. So in John ten eleven, when Jesus comes and says, I am the good shepherd, he is saying, I am the long-awaited king. I heal the sick. <laughs> I bind up the brokenhearted. I am the one who leaves the 99 to go after the one. In fact, I so love my flock that it says the good shepherd will lay down his life for the flock. I am the one who was prophesied to come. I am the anointed king. Woo! It is so beautiful. Jesus is the anointed prophet, the anointed priest, and the anointed king. And he has come for us. Now listen. every, Every office in the Old Testament had a specific moment when they were anointed publicly. Usually it was ceremonially when it it took place to say this person has been set apart. So if Jesus is the true prophet, priest, and king, does he have a public moment like that where he's anointed? Yes, he does. (laughs) Turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. I want you to see this for yourself. Where Jesus is anointed, and so many Old Testament prophecies get fulfilled right here. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. And this is what it says Luke chapter 3, verse 21. I'll just read up to 23. This is Jesus' baptism. It says, Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, what? The heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, clothed him in power like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. Now listen, it says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now look at verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry. Jesus, when he began his ministry. Jesus did not begin his ministry until the Holy Spirit clothed him with power at his baptism. What ministry is he stepping into? The trifold ministry of prophet, priest, and king. This was the public moment where Jesus was stepping into the long-awaited anointed one. How do you know? This is a fulfillment of Isaiah 42. Where in Isaiah 42 it says, Behold, I have chosen my servant or my son, God says, in whom my soul delights. What was spoken over Jesus at his baptism? The father said, this is the one whom I love. And I'm well pleased in. Isaiah 42 says, I've chosen my servant, which actually can mean son. And it's the one in whom my soul delights. And then in verse 2 of Isaiah 42, it says, and I have put my spirit upon him that he would lead the nations into justice. And that's where it goes on to say, a bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. The anointing of Jesus, the long-awaited anointed one, is being fulfilled right here. That's why in the next chapter, Jesus goes into the synagogue in Luke 4. And he opens up the text to read. And do you know what he reads? Isaiah 61. Another prophecy of when the anointed one would come. And Jesus says this in quoting Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, set the captives free. When did that happen? At his baptism. He's saying all this happened. That was my public anointing. Do you know in, uh, you don't need to turn there, but in Acts 10... Uh, Peter is preaching to Cornelius, the first uh, Gentile uh, conversion. He's the Roman officer. Just listen to this. As he's preaching to Cornelius and his household, he says this. You yourselves know what happened throughout all of Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. So he just said the baptism that John proclaimed. Who was baptized at that baptism? Jesus was. Now look what he says in the next verse. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was anointed at the baptism with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Oh, man, the anointing of Jesus takes place right there in Luke chapter 3. You may say, well, wait a minute. What what do you mean? What, What happened to Jesus? He was born and conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. So he was always the Holy One and always the Son of God. But it was at this baptism where the Spirit of God came upon him where he stepped into the prophetic calling of him being the Spirit-anointed Son. This is where they longed the way to the one who would come as prophet, priest, king to set them free. But in every way, his anointing is so different. (laughs) Because it says that when he was baptized and the Spirit of God came, it says the the heavens were opened. But it does not do it justice because in Mark 1.9, it says the heavens were rend open. Literally means the heavens were torn, split apart, ripped open. This literally is a violent eruption of the Spirit coming down on the earth in a way we had never seen before. When When the baptism took place, the heavens were ripped open. And it says, and the Son of God came up out of the waters and the Spirit of the Lord clothed him. So that in Luke 4, it could say, and he left full of the Holy Spirit. Full of the Holy Spirit. Full of the Holy Spirit. That's why John said in John 3.34 that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him without measure. Meaning there was no restriction. The fullness of God was upon him in the Spirit. He was the anointed one. And not only did it come in fullness, John also said, John the Baptist, that I saw him who the Spirit came down on and the Spirit rested and remained. He did not come on for a certain task like in the Old Testament. It remained upon Jesus for his entire ministry. So one last scripture, we'll close here. John, uh, Galatians 2, please. I'll finish out right here. Galatians 2. And Mark, if you can, if you want to just put something on as we're just going to close in prayer after this. I feel going through the names of God, there's like such important theology that we're covering. So we really get rooted in the scriptures. What it means, we say Jesus the Christ. When we say that, now we know he's the anointed prophet, priest, and king. And we begin to understand what that means. And you know when it happened. But I just want to read the scripture that I I highlighted before very briefly. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And listen to what Paul says. Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ... Ready? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Wow. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Ready? And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul says, I no longer live. When you become a new covenant believer, you no longer live, but he says, but Christ in me. What is he saying? Is there a tiny little Messiah living inside of you? (laughs) No, no, no. What he's saying is the anointing of God. The anointing of God. How many of you confidently can say, I've been born again by the Holy Spirit? Do you know what that means then? The prophetic anointing, the priestly anointing, and the kingly anointing lives inside each and every one of you. Every one of you. And Paul says... I no longer live according to my own strength, but I live according to that anointing now. How did that anointing get there? How did that happen? Well, in the Old Testament, when they would put the olive oil on an individual, they took it from olives. In order to get the olive oil out, they had to take the olive, and it said they had to press the olive. They had to crush the olive. And when you crush the olive, the the olive oil pours out. (laughs) Jesus, the true olive, was crushed for us. He was pressed for us upon the cross. So that in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit could be poured out upon us. So that now, see, we may say, well, I don't understand. I'm not living in, I feel like I'm not walking in that. But that's why Paul says, the life I now live in the flesh and the natural, I live by faith. You have to have faith that the anointing of Christ is in you. So that's what I mean. When you feel distant from God you have to remember that the great high priest anointing lives in you. And he's made a way for you to draw near to the throne of grace. But the more we come under the anointing of Christ in our own life, the more that anointing flows through us. So the more that he is the true prophet in our life, meaning he has the final word, the more our words will have life. That's how it happens. It's surrender to that anointing. Here's the best rule I could ever say. And I apply it in my life. Whenever you're wondering what I should do, say, well, what did Jesus say about this? <laughs> Whatever he said, do it. <laughs> Look, we want to shepherd people and lead people how? We got to come under his shepherding in that mm-hmm. and that anointing. And that anointing, what Paul's saying is, you will go so much farther in the Christian walk through yielding to that anointing than you could ever do in your own strength. Amen. Let me illustrate it and then I'm going to pray for you. There's an Olympic sport called high jumping. Everyone knows that? That's not anything profound. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Well, in high jumping, you can jump to about seven feet tall. The goal is you want to get over a bar, right? Well, there's another Olympic sport uh, sport, which is uh, pole vaulting where you can actually run and hit a pole and jump over it. And your goal is the same goal. You're trying to get over a bar except you can go about 19 feet tall, (laughs) The point is they both have the same goal, but one is done in his own strength. The other one is done in reliance on something else. And we can try to do things in this Christian walk in our own strength, or we can yield our lives to the anointing of God that lives in us. And God will be able to do exceedingly abundantly above whatever we can ask or think as we lean upon him, as we lean upon him. So I'm just going to ask you to stand, and I'm going to close in prayer right here. So I just ask you to close your eyes. And I just want you to consider this. Why would we need Christ to live in us? If the goal is just about hanging on for dear life to get to heaven, that just seems like there has to be more. And the reason why the same anointing that Christ walked in, he was crushed so that you could walk in it, is so that the scriptures say, Jesus told us, that as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And he's given you that anointing, not just so we can say, look at me, but it's because he's invited us into the same mission. He's invited us to go out and be the word of God and release it. He's invited us to shepherd people and lead people with wisdom, justice, compassion. He's actually called us into the ministry of reconciliation. It's all in him. But he invites us now. He's given us everything we need to step into it. And so, Holy Spirit, I just pray the light's out on everything. That I thank you, Lord. I thank you for your anointing. I thank you that Christ lives in us. And I I just pray that something would be awakened in every heart here to know that the the prophetic anointing, the kingly anointing, the priesthood anointing lives in them. And I pray, Lord, in areas where, where we're struggling to believe, I pray that faith would hit hearts. I pray that faith would hit hearts. Lord, I pray that as a church that we would surrender, we would surrender to the anointing that you have placed in us, Lord that it would no longer be I, Andrew, that lives, or anyone in this church that lives, but Christ in me. I pray, Lord, that we would step. I pray, Lord, Lord, I I declare and decree that we will step into a new season of anointing, Lord, that we will surrender more and more in our lives to your voice, to your truth, to your leadership, and that we will see your anointing flow through our lives. I thank you, Lord, that you've given us the anointing that breaks the yoke of slavery, Lord. I thank you that you've given us something that is deeper than just entertainment, Lord. But you want us to really go and make a difference. And so I just pray right now, right now. Just place, just place your hand on your forehead, on your head. They, w- they would anoint heads. I just pray prophetically right now, Lord, that as we just even lay hands on ourselves, Lord, I just pray for fresh anointing. Right now, in Jesus' name, I pray for a fresh anointing. I thank you, Lord, that you, you died. You died for this, Lord. We don't take it lightly, Lord. We don't take it lightly. I pray that oil from heaven would be released upon your people right now. Fresh oil from heaven, Lord. Fresh oil from heaven, Lord. Lord, I pray for a fresh baptism of the Holy Spirit. You told your disciples to wait in Jerusalem to be clothed with power from on high like you were. To not begin ministry until that clothing took place. And I just pray right now, Lord, that you would come upon people like you did in the house of Cornelius while the message was being preached. I pray you would empower people, Lord. Empower people, Lord. Fill them, fill them, fill them, Lord. Fill them, Lord. Lord, that we would walk like you were, full of the Holy Spirit. Paul commanded, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. You fill a cup by putting it under the faucet. All we do is yield and say, Lord, fill me afresh again. Fill me afresh again. Lord, we yield once more this morning and say, we, we cannot do your mission apart from your anointing. So as yielded vessels this morning, we present our cup to you and say, anoint again, anoint again. That as your people are released, God, they would be released to do your works. May the oil of gladness be upon them, Lord. May the joy of the Lord be their strength. And may we represent you well until you return, Jesus. You are our Christ. You are our Messiah. You are the one that we have been looking for. And we have found you and you have found us. And we bless your name here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I bless you guys. If anyone needs prayer, we will have a prayer team up here. I know the lights are out, so be careful. We're going to put it on now. But we still pray right through the dark. <laughs> so uh, Vicky, Don, if Vicky and Don could come up, if there's anyone who needs specific prayer, lay hands on them. We'll pray for people, but we bless you guys. Have an awesome, awesome Sunday.